You're listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us. Hi, I'm Annie from the U.S. And I'm Johanna from Austria, and you're listening to your favorite international podcast. If you're new here, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Uh, send us a message and let us know how you found us, because we're really interested in that. We are a murder, mystery, and macabre-centered podcast, and Annie and I are online friends who never met in real life. And if you're a regular, you already know all of this. Thank you for joining us. On another episode, we couldn't be more grateful for your ongoing support. We really do have the best listeners. One thing before we start, please make sure to check your email, the one that you use to register to vote in the podcast awards. So please check not only your main inbox, but also your spam folder, because that's where the message notifying you that you were selected to vote ended up for some people. An easier way to check, honestly, is if you go to podcastawards.com and log in using your regular email and see if it allows you to vote. Because one listener couldn't, or this is what one of our listeners did, and it turned out she was eligible to vote. It's just some people, I think, missed the notification that they were actually chosen. So if you can log in, it'll let you know if you can vote or not. It's probably the easiest way. The competition this year is intense. So many big great, wonderful podcasts that we're up against. And every vote will help. So thank you so much in advance. Oh, and I almost forgot. Sorry for not being here last week. I had family stuff come up last minute. No worries, nothing bad. I just had to be somewhere. And it was the only time where we were able to record. But as always, I knew Annie would do a great job. And she did. So thanks, Annie. I hope. This <laughs> my 40 minutes of, let me tell you some facts about cranberries. <laughs> All right. Do you want to tell them what we're talking about today? Yes, this is a fresh hell first. Today, we are going to be talking about a child murderer. We've never discussed a case where a child was the killer, where a child murdered someone. True. Even though throughout history, there have been many cases like it. I think two of the more infamous ones are Mary Bell and also the murder of James Bolger, which is so sad. And that mm -hmm. is a case that really haunts me a lot. Yeah, that's... The James Bulger case is, that's awful. That's Mary Bell. There's another one here that's pretty infamous, uh, a boy that I'll, I may cover down the line. Jesse Pomeroy. Yeah, he's, a, he's creepy, creepy, creepy. It's interesting, though, that both the cases that you just mentioned happened in England because today's episode is also set in the UK. Today, we're going to be talking about Robert Coombs and the Plastow Horror, or how it was mostly referred to in the newspaper at the time, the Plastow Matricide. As for sources, our biggest source in this case is the book The Wicked Boy by Kate Summerscale, and of course, as always, various newspaper articles of the time. That's one thing that your Patreon money really does immediately impact and help and support, the subscriptions to newspaper archives. They're expensive, and we couldn't do this podcast without access to these archives. So thank you so much to our Patreon members for helping to keep the lights on over here. We're really, really grateful. All right, let's dive in. I do want to mention quickly before we get started that today is the first part of a two-parter. Uh, it's kind of its own story. You'll understand when we're done. And then next week will be part two. Today we are going to be discussing injury and murder of pregnant women, and we're also going to be discussing injuries that can occur at birth. If that's a sensitive topic, this might not be the episode for you. Okay, here we go. So this case is set in London in the 1890s. I think we discussed the Victorian era and living conditions in London at the time sufficiently by now. We've discussed it pretty frequently, right? We're not gonna, I'm like, let's take it back to the beginning. And everyone's like, no, we read this book already. Don't worry. We're not, we're not gonna do that. If you need to know more, go back to any of our other Victorian episodes. I would start with Victorian Death Trip, parts one and two, for sure. 
We're going to start today with Emily Harrison Allen, who was born on March 1st, 1858, in Karachi, India. Well, back then Karachi was India, nowadays Karachi is in Pakistan. It's the largest city in Pakistan and the 12th largest city in the world. At the start of the 1800s, Karachi was a small fishing village in the northwest of India with just a handful of people and not very much happening in terms of business. Then, in 1839, the British East India Company took control of the area because they realized that Karachi's natural harbor was super important for their trade plans. So they made it a really, really huge, important port. Karachi started growing and became a main hub for sea trading because it was so close to important trade routes, and it had connections to the Indus River. More and more people from different parts of India came to live in Karachi, and of course, British colonizers started to flock to the area, as they did all over India trying to earn a fortune off the work and resources to be found there. When the Suez Canal opened in 1869, Karachi became even more significant because it made a faster way for ships to travel between Europe and Asia. People started getting into industries like textiles, tanning, and building ships, which made the economy grow. As Karachi got bigger, it turned into a melting pot of different cultures and groups. By the time the 1800s were ending, Karachi had completely transformed from a small village into a lively city with lots of people and very busy trade. This set the stage for its big role in the 1900s, even becoming Pakistan's capital until Islamabad took over in 1963. So this is where Emily Harrison Allen was born. Her father had an occupation, mariner, written down in the census, so we can assume he had to travel to India for work and decided to take his wife with him. I have no idea if the older children were there as well, but I somehow have the feeling that they stayed back in England with relatives. Now, you might think that Harrison is an unusual middle name for a girl, but you may have assumed it is the name of a family name, maybe her maiden name or her godfather's name, but no. According to the book The Wicked Boy, Harrison was the last name of a ship's captain, who had rescued the heavily pregnant Trifina Allen, Emily's mother, from a shipwreck on a river. That's dramatic. And to honor him, Trifina decided to name her unborn child after him. Emily was one of five children that Trifina and her husband George had, as far as we can understand, and based on what we could find on Ancestry, she was the middle child and the only one born in India. So at some point, the family returned to England. In the late 1870s, Emily and her family, or at least part of her family, was living in Liverpool, where the young, attractive woman met Robert Coombs. Robert Coombs was born in 1844 as the eldest son of Robert Coombs Sr. and his wife Mary. He too had four siblings, just like Emily, and Robert's father was a very successful potato merchant. But Robert didn't follow his footsteps, he decided to learn the trade of a butcher. By the age of 25, he was already so good in his trade that he was able to open his own business in the west of London, uh, in Notting Hill to be exact. He was even able to employ three men, one of them his younger brother, Frederick. Unfortunately, and we don't know what exactly happened there, in 1873 he had to declare bankruptcy, he had to close shop, all his belongings were seized and divided amongst his creditors. But he was actually lucky because only four years earlier the law had been changed so that bankruptcy didn't automatically end you in prison. So Robert Coombs had to start over and he went to Liverpool to find employment there. And he did. He actually became a ship steward for the National Steamship Company Limited. And he would mostly travel on the transatlantic route to bring emigrants from Europe to New York, where they hoped to find a better life. So he meets Emily and they get married in 1878. What I find interesting is that on their marriage certificate, his profession is still listed as butcher, even though I'm pretty sure that by the time he had been working as a steward already. Also, Robert Coombs' senior profession is listed as fruiter. And I love <laughs> the term. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think it's used often anymore. No, I'm. Tr you know what? I'm trying to remember back to the beginning of the wonderful film Splash, starring Tom Hanks and John Candy and Daryl Hannah, where Tom Hanks and John Candy are fruit sellers. 
And I don't think they're ever called fruiters. <laughs> That's my only reference for fruit merchants, by the way. But I'm going to, based on that, I'm going to say it's a no. I wonder if he kept butcher because that's what he'd been trained in. It's possible, but also I, I read, I don't know how accurate it is, that he only worked on, on passenger ships for a short while and then later he switched to like cattle ships. Oh, okay. And that he was probably working also, you know, cooking, cooking for the crew there, something like that. I'm not entirely sure. It's possible. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So the newlywed couple is very much in love. According to reports, Emily is 20 years old at the time and apparently has beautiful eyebrows and a jawline for days. That's uh, what is specifically <laughs> mentioned about her. Robert is 34 and he has impressive sideburns. Well, what else do you need? Or burn sides, which I find so funny that that's a, right, the correct term, whatever. <laughs> burns? What? You didn't know that? No. Sideburns is not the correct term. The correct term would be burn sides, named after some general from the Civil War. Oh. Mm-hmm. Huh. <laughs> I'm gonna cut that, but it's true. Look no, it I think you should leave it in. It's really interesting. I just had no idea. It's just a lot to process. <laughs> Sometimes word entomology is a wild ride. <laughs> so he has impressive sideburns. Or Burnside's. And Burnside. a well-groomed moustache. <laughs> Over the next few years, the couple keeps moving between Liverpool and London, especially after the Royal Arbor Dock in London was opened. There's also one in Liverpool, so that's a little bit confusing. Many streamliners now would also start their journey from London. Their first child was born on 6th of January 1882, and he was named Robert Allen Coombs, giving him Emily's maiden name as a middle name. His birth was not easy for poor Emily. Robert's birth needed the assistance of forceps. A forceps birth, also known as forceps delivery or assisted vaginal delivery, is a medical procedure used during childbirth to assist in the delivery of a baby. It involves the use of a medical instrument called forceps, which are curved metal or nowadays also sometimes plastic tongs to gently guide the, the, the emphasis was on gently to gently. gently guide the baby's head through the birth canal when certain complications or challenges arise during labor. Forceps deliveries are typically only considered when certain complications occur during delivery that may be prolonged labor. Uh, which means it's taking longer than expected and the mother is exhausted, or the baby shows sign of distress, forceps may be used to speed up the delivery. Yeah, so basically forceps are, are really only used when there's real danger there. You know, if the baby is trapped, if the mother is weak or can't, you know, there's... They're kind of a they're kind of a life or death situation for us. Also when the the position of the baby is weird, like breach, for example, mm -hmm. used to be Back then, something where forceps were used. So the mother is usually given anesthesia, either through an epidural or local anesthesia, to numb the lower part of her body and reduce pain. The doctor gently, again, emphasis on gently. And this is today. Never mind in the this 1800s. This is today, yeah. Yeah, there was no epidural or local anesthesia. No. So the doctor gently, if he knows what he's doing and, it, and if everything goes as expected, inserts the forceps into the birth canal and carefully attaches them to the sides of the baby's head. As the mother pushes during contractions, the doctor uses the forceps to guide and assist the baby's head through the birth canal. Once the baby's head is delivered, the doctor will help guide the rest of the baby's body out. Of course, forceps deliveries are performed by skilled medical professionals typically obstetricians, and are only used when deemed necessary for the safety of the mother and the baby. The procedure requires careful monitoring and skill to ensure a safe delivery and minimize potential risks. I never gave birth, and I'm no expert whatsoever, but from what I read, I want to add that forceps deliveries are just one of several options available during childbirth, and the decision to use forceps uh, is made based on the specific circumstances and the professional judgment of the medical team. One of the other options nowadays is vacuum delivery, and apparently forceps deliveries make up 1-5% to of all births. That's still... I, I wouldn't have thought that it's still so many forceps deliveries nowadays. Mm-hmm. 
And that also depends on which statistic you look at and which, which country is the statistics from. So that differs a little bit. Right. Yeah. And of course, with all medical procedures, there are certain risks to a forceps birth. That's why I think they're not usually used unless it's life and death. At least these days. These days. Back then. So this is an article from utswmed.org. An article entitled, What Moms Should Know About Forceps and Vacuum Deliveries. This is by uh, Julie Y. Lowe, MD, and it was published in April on April 19, 2022. And she writes, quote, Although rare, there are risks associated with these delivery methods. Possible risks to the mother include increased potential of lacerations tearing around the vagina, rectum, or urethra, short-term urinary incontinence, increased blood loss. Possible risks of the baby include minor facial injuries, including bruising, temporary facial muscle weakness, skull fractures, but realize that this can also happen with delivery via C-section when the head is already low in the pelvis, and bleeding, end quote. I think it's safe to say that in the 1880s, injuries in forceps birth were probably a lot more common and likely than today, and so it also happened to Robert. When he came into this world, his temples showed visible forceps marks. But we will circle back to this in a little bit. So Emily gave birth to their second son, Nathaniel, and he was also called Nettie, on 18th of March, 1883. So there is an age difference between the two boys of almost one and a half years. Again, the family was moving around a little bit. In 1885 or 86, the family was living in Liverpool with relatives. Robert Sr., who used to be Junior before, which is because Robert Jr. is actually Robert III, right? Mm -hmm. He was still working on ships as a steward, which meant he would be gone five to six weeks at a time, and he would earn £65 annually. This income placed the family in the lower middle class bracket. They were by no means rich, but they could live comfortably. Around 1888, Emily and the two boys returned to London, while her husband remained in Liverpool until 1892. 1888, so when Robert was six, almost seven years old, they are in London. And you are all historical true crime experts by now, and so you, of course, immediately know what was going on in London in 1888. Jack the Ripper. Exactly. Now... Let me tell you all about Jack the Ripper. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no. Now, just for a little back context on Jack the Ripper. <laughs> we don't know how much Robert heard about these murders. I think he must have overheard some snippets of grown-up conversations. It's not like adults really try to shield children of these kind of things back in those days. Right. And the Whitechapel murders were big news all over London, and they didn't live too far from Whitechapel on top of that. So I'm pretty sure that he heard something, but of course we don't know if it influenced Robert Jr. in any way. What we do know, however, is that he started to develop an interest in true crime, crime novels, detective stories, and adventure books. And he loved to read the so-called Penny Dreadfuls. For those of you who don't know, even though I think we talked about Penny Dreadfuls before, right? Mm-hmm. So they were a type of cheap and sensational literature that was popular in the 19th century, particularly in Britain. These publications were characterized by their low cost, often priced at just one penny, hence the name, and their thrilling and often macabre content, so penny dreadful. They were a form of serial fiction that catered to a wide audience, including working class readers and young people. And these books were like kind of TV shows before TV shows were a thing, because they'd release a new part of the story regularly, often every week, to, you know, keep the readers hooked. And they'd wrap up each section with a nail-biting moment, like a cliffhanger, leaving you hungry for more. So smart. I love these yeah. kind of things. It's the serial, the old serial. They'd go all out with their wild, dramatic stories. We're talking crime, mystery, spooky stuff, epic adventures, supernatural twists. They aimed to pull at your heartstrings and they gave you shivers all at once. It was perfect. And they often came with cool pictures to go along with the stories. spring Jack, Varnet the Vampire and Sweeney Todd were some of the most popular ones. 
Yeah, I really loved, I'm sure we spoke about it before, but the television show Penny Dreadful. I never was, watched it, is it any good? I really loved it, but I really like Eva Green. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed it, yeah. So, all right. In 1892, Robert Sr. joins his wife and two boys in London, and the family moved into the house on 35 Cave Row in Plastow, part of London's East End. Now, when you hear East End in the 1890s, you probably, you might immediately think poverty, crowded living conditions, poor hygiene, alcohol abuse, violence, sickness, everything that all of London was experiencing during this time. And yes, this was an area that had seen exponential growth by the end of the 19th century. It was where many factories and the docks were located, but Plastow, even though in very close proximity to the docks, was not yet part of the city of London, but part of Greater London. It wouldn't be until 1965 that Plastow would be incorporated into the city of London itself. The house where the Coombs moved into was one of these row houses, you know, where all the small houses are attached to the neighbor's house, and then just the end units would be sort of semi-detached. I love those row houses. The house had a metal fence and a metal gate that separated the street from the very small front yard. It looks to me like a nice two-up, two-down Victorian row house. There's an arched doorway with a pediment arch and a bay window on the front. It's really pretty. We'll post a picture. I like the bay window especially. I do too, very much. So when you enter the house, you're standing in a long, narrow hallway. And to the left, we would enter the front parlor. That's the room with that big, beautiful bay window. Then there are steps leading to the second floor or the first floor if you're in the UK. And the rest of Europe. And the rest of, if you're in anywhere else, it's the, it's the, it's the first floor. But here in the States, it's the second floor. And then there would be a back parlor with just like a window into the backyard. And then if you enter the hallway straight ahead, you would enter the kitchen. And from there, there would be a door going out into the backyard. And that's where the privy or outhouse would be. Upstairs, you would find two bedrooms. One was usually where the boys slept, and the other was for Emily and, of course, Robert Sr. on the occasions that he was home. So, compared to many others at the time in London, the Coombs family had a really nice, comfortable home. It was clean, light, and there was enough space for all four of them. They filled their home with nice furniture and lovely decorations that Robert Sr. was bringing home from his many travels. They had simple jewelry and a silver and gold watch. They also had an exotic bird as a pet, which I love that for them. The kids attended school and learned musical instruments. Nothing was really fancy. They weren't wealthy, but absolutely, they were doing really well. And everything was nice, and the children were taken care of. The clothes, the shoes, the personal hygiene. It was all really good. Every now and then, they'd have some minor financial problems. And occasionally they had to pawn off one of the watches or some of the jewelry for a little bit if they couldn't get an advance on Robert's salary, but they did always manage to pay back the pawn shop and get their items returned. I think one of the issues was that Robert's job, it was paying good money, but it was never like a secure position because after each tour, the crew would be discharged and they would have to apply again for the next trip. So far, it had always worked out, but it, it just wasn't super stable. I think that's what I'm trying to say. It's not like a Monday to Friday, nine to five job in as a clerk in some office. Right. Yeah. I mean, Paul and I went through that. When Paul and I first met, he didn't have a nine to five job and he ended up getting one just so that we could buy the house because you had to prove to the mortgage people that you had stable income. Yeah, they're definitely, definitely living a much better quality of life than many, many others at that time in London, as you know, if we've covered, if, if you've listened, if you've listened to us cover those episodes. They were not as wealthy as both of their families had been. Both of their parents had been able to afford servants, but Emily and Robert Sr. definitely led a good life. Okay, so we mentioned before that Robert Jr. was a big fan of those Penny Dreadfuls, but what else was going on with him and his brother? Well, we do know from an early age that Robert did suffer from severe headaches. Now, we obviously don't know why. It could have been migraines, but is it also possible that the forceps birth, you know, that one that left visible marks on his head, 
caused some nerve or brain damage. I think it's quite possible, especially Mm -hmm. a nerve damage. His parents took him to see doctors, of course, and they advised Emily and Robert Sr. to not hit Robert on the head, which is obviously horrible. They're like, listen, doctor, our son has terrible, terrible headaches. What do you advise? And the doctor's like, best I can offer is stop hitting him on the head. (laughs) It's the Victorian era. Horrible to hear for us nowadays, but back then, let's be real here, corporal punishment for children or wives also was by far not out of the ordinary. But, and that's interesting, it's also worth mentioning that the first child protection laws in Britain were enhanced in the 1880s with the so-called Prevention of Cruelty to and Protection of Children Act 1889. We'll link to it so you can read the whole thing if you're interested. But this legislation already regulated things like child labor, cruelty towards children, and so on. So even back then, there were already people who cared. Of course, you always have to see these things in the historical context. Often these laws would not be held up when it came to parents beating their children excessively. But at least it was a start. It was It was better than nothing. Uh, He was also prescribed potassium bromide, which is a type of inorganic salt and is commonly used for various applications, more so in the past, for example, in photography, some industrial processes, and in medicine, where it was used as an anticonvulsant and sedative, primarily in the treatment of epilepsy and other neurological disorders. However, its usage for these purposes has significantly decreased due to the development of more effective and safer medications. I think it's still used somewhat in veterinary medicine, but for humans it's not that common anymore due to some problems that it can cause. One of the main concerns with potassium bromide is its potential for toxicity and the occurrence of side effects. Long-term use of potassium bromide can lead to bromism, Uh, or um, bromide load, I think it's also called. It's a condition caused by the accumulation of excessive bromide in the body and the symptoms of bromism, which sounds like... It sounds like broism. Yeah. (laughs) And the symptoms of bromism can include (laughs) lethargy, memory problems, confusion, and skin rashes. Also, potassium bromide has a relatively narrow therapeutic window meaning that the difference between a therapeutic dose and a toxic dose is super small, so it's very challenging to find the right dosage that effectively treats seizures without killing the patients, basically. It doesn't really work, and it might kill you. So there are better options out there today, but not for Robert back then. Aside from his health problems, Robert was an exceptionally smart boy. He was a good student, loved to play the mandolin which is an instrument from the lute family that gets usually played with a pick. I love the sound of a mandolin, and I also love the sound of balalaikas. I'm a very huge fan of of lute family instruments. So, Robert was smart, but he was also a troublemaker. I think it's quite possible that he was bored at school. Yeah, I think he was problematically smart. I think Mm. he was too smart for his education level. He would skip school at times. He would come up with little scams and try to forge letters and signatures and such. I don't think his troublemaking was ever physical, meaning I don't think he got in physical fights or similar things. I read one time, for example, he and Nathaniel, so Nettie, uh, they forged a letter and they got an advance on their father's salary that they used to go to Liverpool and the police got involved and when they were caught and about to get punished for the crime, their mother stepped in and swore she would punish them for their behavior at home, so they were let go, and she could take them home, but apparently she never punished them. I think these kids were really loved and well taken care of, but Emily and Robert Sr. don't appear to have been very strict parents. Yeah. Also, at least one time, Robert Jr. didn't attend school for quite a while because his father took him to New York on one of his travels. In the late 19th century, the school leaving age was increased. It used to be 10, so 10-year-olds would not need to attend school anymore and were allowed to work in the mines, for example, or chimney sweeps, you know. Yeah. In 1893, it was increased to 11 years, and in 1899, it was increased to 12. Robert left school in June of 1894, so when he was 12 years old. I think his parents would have probably 
let him stay in school even longer if he would have been like an eager student. Yes, I agree. He then started to work at the dockyards, but he didn't keep this job for very long. One thing that's also interesting to know regarding his obsession with murderers. At one point, Robert had run from home to attend the hearing or trial, depending on the sources, of the very notorious South End murderer. The South End murderer was actually a man named James Canham Reed, who, in 1894, was 39 years old. He was a cashier at the Royal Albert Dock in London, and he made very good money there. He was married to Emma Sarah Payne, and the couple had eight children. But if you think that a full-time job, a wife, and a house full of children was enough to keep Reed busy, you are sorely mistaken, because he still found enough time and energy to have several mistresses, and pretty much was able to build separate lives with each of them. Sounds so exhausting. Yeah. Well, we're, we're about to find out his trick. It's, it's less impressive than you think. Because, <laughs> surprise, surprise, he's not devoted family man at home with his family for dinner every night with anybody. One of the mistresses was a young woman named Florence Dennis. He had met her in 1890 when Florence was 18 years old. By the end of 1893, Florence was pregnant with Reed's child but by that time, he had already lost any interest in her and had moved on to yet another woman that he secretly married. So now he has at least two wives who don't know of each other and at least one pregnant mistress, possibly more, who can say. And if you wonder how he kept all of this up, he told his second wife that he was a traveling salesman and that explained why he wasn't home with her and their newborn son often. Apparently, he was with wife number one from Monday to Friday, and he was with wife number two Saturdays and Sundays. And as an excuse to wife number one, he said he was suffering. This is... (laughs) Oh boy. As an excuse to wife number one, with whom he has eight children, Mm -hmm. she's at home alone with eight kids all day, He's at home at night, and then on the weekend, he's completely gone. So he says to this woman, working her fingers to the bone, that he's suffering from heart problems because of all the stress at his very, very important job, and he needs to spend the weekends in the countryside in order to get healthy. He's really off with wife number two. So just to keep up, wife number one, at home with eight kids, he spends weeknights with her. Wife number two, at home with one kid, he spends weekends with her, and then he's got his mistress, Florence, who is pregnant. So this man is just living the dream. Well, his dream. <laughs> who has the time? It's someone, it's not my dream. It's, no. It's, it sounds it's exhausting. Dream, apparently. Yeah. Until April of 1894. That's when Florence tells him about her pregnancy. And Reed, the egotistical asshole that he was, started to worry immediately about how this new pregnancy was going to complicate things for him. He's like, oh man. For him, not for anybody else. It was just all about him. Him. Of course it's just about him. Was Florence going to make trouble? Would she tell either of his wives what was really going on? So James C. Reed hatched a plan. On Friday, June 22nd, Florence received a telegram asking her to meet up in Prittlewell on Sunday. So, fast forward to Sunday, June 24th, 1894. Reed had set up this meeting with Florence in, I think it's pronounced Prittlewell, a village near Southend. He took the train there the day before and probably stayed at some local hotel on Saturday night. Florence thought that they were going to talk about her pregnancy and their future. So they were seen together a bit after 10 p.m. by a local man. And then not long after that, Reed shot and killed her in a field on the outskirts of town. Which is beyond sad. Reminds me of the case uh, that you covered that also has this movie with Elizabeth Taylor and Rock Hudson based on it. You remember what I'm talking about? Mm. Yes, yes. It's just, 
she was pregnant. Mm. You know, it's, oh, it's so sad. Oh, and he missed the last train and had to walk home. Yeah, so he took the London Road and just asked a bunch of people for directions after the murder, including a cop in Benfleet around 1.15 a.m., The first man that he spoke to was Robert Golding, who saw him around 10.30 p.m. in a bar. So all of this points to the murder happening around 10.15 p.m. And here's the eerie part. No one heard any gunshots. Why is this a recurring theme lately? The next morning, he shows up an hour late for work and then immediately started a fire and burned some things. So yeah, he burned some evidence and things. Later that day, since Florence hadn't shown up at home, he got a telegram from Florence's sister, who knew about the affair, asking, where's Flory? And guess what Reed said? He replied, saying he had not seen her for 18 months. But that was way off, considering everything, especially the very recent pregnancy. Reed took around 160 pounds from his work safe because he had the key. You have to imagine that's like three, almost three years salary. It's a lot. For Robert Coombe Sr. It's a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. And he takes the money out of the safe and he leaves. Florence's body was found by a young man named Frederick Rush around 6 p.m. on Monday, June 25th. She was lying in a ditch in that field and had been shot in the head. She was very quickly identified, and her sister told the police about Reed. So the police go to Reed's home, but wife number one says that he's been gone for a while. Southend police even put out a wanted poster around June 26th. On the 7th of July, Reed was finally caught. This is from the Taunton Courier, 11th July, 1894, which was a Wednesday. And get ready for some flames, flames on the side of your head. The South End Mystery, Arrest of the Supposed Murderer, Astounding Narrative. The inquest on the body of Miss Florence Dennis, who was found dead at Prittlewell near South End on the 24th, was resumed and concluded on Thursday. The jury returned a verdict of murder against James C. Reed, a cashier at the Royal Albert Dock, who was arrested on Saturday at Mitcham, Surrey. The prisoner, who is described as a man of education, is married with a hard-working domesticated wife and a large family. She's domesticated. A domesticated wife. You trained her. You can let her out of the crate during the day and she won't pee on the carpet. (laughs) (laughs) Fine, everything's fine. For the last year or two, he had complained to his wife of heart disease, and after much deliberation, he decided to spend his weekend, his week's ends, before the word weekend came up, he decided to spend his week's ends in the country or at the seaside, and for something like nine months, he has stayed away from home every Saturday and Sunday with the object, he assured his wife, of recuperating himself for the week's hard work at the docks. His wife had no suspicion that his movements away from home were other than described to them. Every Sunday night, he would describe to her the new and lovely piece of country he had just explored, or the charm of a seaside resort he had just visited, and his regret that the household duties prevented his wife from accompanying him on these excursions was frequent, and to her, Poor creature. Always seemed sincere. I can picture him returning every Sunday, smug asshole, and telling his wife what a lovely time he had in the countryside and how sorry he is she couldn't be with him. That's the tricky part for me. Why go to the extra effort to describe all the beautiful things she missed while cleaning your shirts and feeding your children? So that she can also enjoy... The countryside with him. She'll enjoy the vacation knowing you enjoyed the vacation. (laughs) I hate him. I hate him so much. Hang on, I gotta fix my headphones. They're all wonky. Okay. Because your headphones are melting off your your head. because They are. My headphones are literally melting on account of the flames on the side of my face right now. Okay. 
The story of James Edgar Benson, the name under which the man arrested was known at Mitcham, presents the reverse side of the picture. Early in February last, Mrs. Young, the wife of a curate in practice in London and living in Upper Mitcham, advertised for a companionable lady or married couple to share her home. The advertisement was answered by James Edgar Benson, who subsequently called and saw the furnished bed-sitting room. He said he thought it would suit his wife, who required the fresh air of the country, and who was left much alone as he was a commercial traveler employed by a firm of tea merchants in London. A few days afterwards, he called again with his young wife and newly-born baby, a little boy in whom the curate's wife soon came to take a great interest. Mr. Benson was apparently a most exemplary man of good conversational powers, affectionate and refined in manners, and evidently an attentive and kindly husband and father. Mrs. Benson was a quiet, sedate young woman of 26, joyous over her baby boy, and devoted to her husband. The curate's wife took quite a fancy to the young mother and soon came to regard her as an excellent companion. Before accepting the tenancy of the Bensons, Mrs. Young took the precaution, as was not unlikely in a clergyman's wife, of asking for the marriage certificate of the couple. She had mentioned this at the outset to Benson, and he had come prepared with it. The certificate appeared genuine, the arrangements for the lodging of the family were quickly settled, and so, in the second week of February, the Bensons took up their abode at Rose Cottage in the pretty suburb. From February until last week, the Bensons and the Youngs were quite a merry family. But the end was near. On Saturday, June 23rd, on which day Miss Dennis was murdered, Mr. Benson did not come home to Mitcham. Late in the afternoon, his wife received a telegram from him. It was dated London. It said, quote, cannot get home, have to go to Cambridge on business. Mrs. Benson waited impatiently for news of her husband. On Monday afternoon, to the woman's intense delight and surprise, Mr. Benson came home. He was pale, haggard, and careworn. His eyes were bloodshot, and he seemed strangely excited, almost hysterical. He explained that he had been traveling night and day to cover the accumulation of work, but he had good news. He was to have a fortnight's holiday. That's two weeks. The woman was delighted. On Saturday morning last, Benson was leaning on the gate at the front of the house when two respectably dressed men came up and spoke to him. He at once went back into the house. An instant later, the men knocked at the closed door of the cottage. They were admitted, and Benson, who was standing in the hall, was at once seized by Detective Inspector Baker of Scotland Yard, arrested as James Canham Reed, and charged with the murder of Flory Dennis at Prittlewell on Sunday night, the 24th. As he was leaving the house door, his wife threw herself into his arms and begged him to tell her the truth. Reed smiled and replied, Don't be upset, my dear. It's all right. These people are on a wrong track. They've made a mistake. I shall be back to you tomorrow. The worst was not known to Mrs. Benson at this time. Detective Baker had taken the curate's wife aside, told her the story of the murder of Flory Dennis, and begged of her to break the news to the young mother. For some time after the three men had left the house, the two women sat, their arms about each other, and when Mrs. Benson heard what the charge was, she burst into a passionate exclamations. It can't be true. I won't believe it. He was so kind. He was so good. End quote. Poor woman. She had no idea. It's not like the second wife had, had any idea no, that he was married. It was not her fault at all. No. He was just such a manipulative... Mm -hmm. mm. He must have been a smooth talker. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Total sociopath, right? I mean, as long as things are convenient for him. So, Robert Coombs had read everything, everything about the South End murder, because, of course, this is big news, right? Also, I think it was fascinating for him because he, Reed had been a cashier at the Royal Albert Dock, and he was probably quite familiar with it because his father worked from there. That's where of he lived. Of course. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That makes sense. So, when he heard Reed had been arrested two weeks after the murder, he was very eager to see him in person, like, even if he could just get a glimpse. 
This is where we get two different accounts, but it's not that big of a difference, and it ultimately doesn't make that much of a difference either way. We think Robert went to see Reed's inquiry in July, right after his arrest. Other sources say he went there at the beginning of the trial, which started in November. It doesn't really matter, but either way, Robert took two shillings, and with it, he bought a train ticket but his money would only buy him a ticket to Grays, which is a village that's only halfway there. So it's 20 miles or 32 kilometers east of London. And so he had to walk from there another 32 kilometers or 20 miles to Southend-on-the-Sea, which is where uh, London's Southend Airport is today. The walk was so long that he had to take breaks, sleeping under some bushes at the side of the road. So on the 9th of July, James C. Reed is appearing before the magistrate in the courthouse at Southend-on-Sea, and hundreds of people are filling the courtroom and the streets around the courthouse, everyone trying to get a look at the murderer. And among them is Robert A. Coombs. Reed looked mighty dapper in his tweed suit and straw hat, and he apparently had a very charming and nonchalant manner, like Ted Bundy. Mm-hmm. People knew that he was guilty. I think only a few maybe had doubt of his guilt, but it doesn't mean that the crowd didn't also feel smitten with him. Again, we see it from time to time, don't we? And so young Robert is standing there and witnessing how this murderer is kind of able to seduce the masses a little bit. And as for James C. Reed, he was tried and sentenced to death. When the verdict was announced, you could hear several women in the courtroom crying and weeping. He was hanged on the 4th of December, 1894. It's such an incredible betrayal. It really, mm. it's awful. And I think it wasn't It wasn't uh, the women who were crying and weeping in the courtroom were actually like his fans that weren't his two wives. That's a thing apparently that always existed, which mm-hmm. I find fascinating. A lot in this case is showing us things that maybe some people think that's modern day, but it has always existed. It's definitely disturbing. I just felt bad for the... I feel... I feel... I just keep imagining that level of betrayal for the wives. Horrible. The two wives didn't know about each other, or... Whereas at least the mistress knew... Yeah. She at least knew that she was getting involved with someone who was willing to cheat on his wife. Whereas the wives would have been blindsided completely. All right, now back to Robert Coombs. Sometime in 1895, so this is after he'd gone to see James Reed, the 13-year-old had purchased a knife that he hid in the backyard of their house at first, and then later he hid it in an unused chimney because he had hatched a plan as well. And I think this is a good time to stop. Don't worry. Next week, you're going to hear the rest of it, and it's wild, it's sad, scary, wild, it's terrible. Horrible, yeah. Uh, My something good this week is on Sunday and Monday, we had, it's called Dorffest, how would you say that, village festival? Yeah, it was like a village, yeah, you had like a village. The whole village comes together, and there's music playing, and dancing, and eating, and drinking, and it's right in front of my house, I sent Annie a video, (laughs) quite funny. (laughs) And on Monday, I was helping at the cake stand, and it was lovely. I really, really love to live here. Everybody's just so welcoming and nice. It's amazing. That's my something good. My little village. I love that. How about you? Music. Music. We're only seeing a few shows this year, but the other night, uh, friends had last-minute tickets to see... The Pretenders, who I love, with Guns N' Roses. And I sent a message to Johanna, and I was like, I'm getting my Botox on Monday. It won't have kicked in. I've had a migraine for, like, three weeks. I'm like, it's not a full-blown. It's right right on the edge. Right on the edge. And uh, I said to Johanna, I'm like, do you think I can do this? I kind of want to just take all the edibles and rally. And she was like, you can do it. And I did. (laughs) And it was good. Chrissy Hines sounds amazing. And... Guns N' Roses were slash sounded great. It was it was fun. It was really fun. And it was pouring, pouring rain. And I'm going to wrap it up because we have friends in town. Because tonight 
We, we're checking something off the bucket list, and we're going to see Bruce Springsteen. I'm so jealous. So, by the time you listen to this tomorrow, do you want me to get you a t-shirt or anything? No, no, it's fine. Don't All worry. Right. Do you want me to get you, like, an $85 if t-shirt? If it would be John Fogarty, you would have to give me a t-shirt, but... Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just excited to go hear live music with friends yeah. and catch up. It's really just catching up with friends we haven't seen in forever, so it's really It's going to nice. be so good. I yeah. heard so many good things about uh, Bruce Springsteen's live show. He just had to cancel a bunch, so we were kind of worried. Mm. It'll all go smoothly. I have to go get in the shower now. All right, so let's wrap this up. Please, don't forget to check your spam, all your email folders, and yeah. if you don't find anything, try to log in. If you're able to log in, then you can vote. Don't worry, it's not, not we're not <laughs> kind of cheating the system. It, no, just no, no, no. In case you lost your email. Yeah, a lot of them went into spam. So basically, yeah. if you can log in and vote, then you were selected. And if you, yeah, and that exactly goes for all of the podcast award uh, nominees. So just log in and check yourself, see if you can vote. And a couple of you might find out that you can and you just missed your thing. Yeah. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, please go to your podcast app and leave us a rating and or review. Also, we are always forgetting our YouTube listeners. We really, really appreciate you. We appreciate all the comments you leave. So interesting. Just today, somebody left a comment under the Lowell Andrews murder, mm. and she's a family member. So that was interesting. That is interesting. And for everything else, go to our webpage, freshhellpodcast.com, or to Patreon if you want to become a Patreon member to support us with our newspaper archives and all the subscriptions that we use for the podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much. Please tell your pets we said hi, the dogs, the cats, the guinea pigs, the snakes, the goats, the donkeys. More donkey photos, please. Also, we really need goats, the ducks, all of them. Tell them we miss them, tell them we love them, hug them, cuddle them. Be kind to them. Be kind to all the human beings out there if they're not an asshole. And be kind to yourself. And that's the hardest part of it all. And that's it. And that's it. And if you're going through hell, keep going. Tschüss. Bye.